Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Queer Voices of the South podcast on the New Books Network. I'm John Marzalek, your host for today's podcast. I'll be interviewing Richard Harold about his book, My Buddha is Pink, Buddhism from a LGBTQI Perspective, published by the Sumero Press. Although today's podcast doesn't focus on the queer South per se, it continues what I suppose I can call a mini-series, within our podcast of my interviewing authors of books with themes on the intersection of queer identity and religious or spiritual identities. This is something important for many queer people, but especially for queer Southerners, like the ones I interviewed for my own book, who grew up in families and communities intertwined with their churches, often churches that rejected their identities as queer people. Many of our listeners, like the queer Southerners I interviewed, had negative rejecting experiences with their childhood religions and found alternative paths, religions, or spiritualities when they reached adulthood. Others are still searching. I think today's episode will offer yet another example of an alternative path for numerous queer Southerners, whether they are interested in learning more about Buddhism or simply curious about learning more about how its philosophy can help you live a life that brings more happiness. My Buddha is Pink is a collection of essays designed to help LGBTQI practitioners follow the Buddha's path without getting lost in dogma. As with other major religions of the world, there are portions of Buddhism that have persisted through the years that can come off as homophobic at worst, or at the minimum, restrictive toward the community. My Buddha is Pink seeks to slice through the dogma and hone in on Buddhism's basics to guide the solo practitioner on a skillful course toward a more fulfilling life. Moreover, it is a fun and lighthearted look at being a happy and healthy modern queer Buddhist in an environment where homophobia remains an issue. Richard Harold, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited that you're here today. I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners about yourself. Well, I certainly did not grow up in a Buddhist tradition. It is something that came into my life um, much, much later and probably in a situation of, you know, uh, intense emotional crisis um, and in pain in which I was trying to find something that I could uh, latch on to in a more concrete way than perhaps the Catholic upbringing that I come from. And I found Buddhism to be so much more satisfying and also something that I could use on a day-to-day basis um, in living my life and, and striving to become a better human being. Probably began, I'm going to say around 2000, 2001 was when I became interested in Buddhism. And, and uh, the book, is, as you say, it's a collection of essays. 
um, but they come from a blog that I used to keep uh, because I thought that would be a good avenue to work on my practice. Uh, I didn't grow up in uh, rural South. I grew up in rural Michigan. So my access to Buddhist teachers and to other Buddhists was very limited. So I used a personal practice and developing it and writing about it as I was going through it to help me develop uh, the right habits, right focus, the right uh, frame of mind uh, to grow my practice. Yeah. And I, and I think having been to rural Michigan myself, I, I think there are so many similarities between rural Michigan and the rural South, especially in terms of access to things like Buddhism. And with the predominant, uh, not to necessarily disparage, you know, other religions and monotheism in particular, but it, it tends to be a very um, regimented and growing up uh, with a queer identity, it certainly became exclusionary. And, and that was something that created tremendous conflict in me throughout my life. And Buddhism provided for me um, a much easier way to not only come to know and respect and love myself, but also to uh, respect others. Yeah, yeah. How did you end up turning these essays from a blog into a book? You know, what, what drew you to doing, what drew you to going a step further and actually publishing a book? Well, Writing the blog, I came into contact with other Buddhist writers who were frequent readers of my own blog, and we would communicate with each other from time to time. We even did um, article trades where someone would come up with a a topic, and then uh, we would write something. I would write uh, an article that would be published on somebody else's blog, and that way Uh, we expanded our reach to other people and and found out about us. So um, the, uh, now, now, you know what, as I started saying that, forgive me, I kind of lost track of what your question was. That's that's okay. That's okay. No, that's okay. I was just curious about the whole process of, you know, you, you, Oh um, yes. Okay. The mind is a funny thing, right? You know, the monkey mind. I was going to say the monkey mind you talk, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the, the, um, the idea to turn these essays then into books or a book came from one of these other bloggers. They said, Hey, you know, why don't you, okay. you can write a book. You can put these all together and write a book. And, and I thought, you know, yes, I could. Um, and so, um, the, in fact, the, uh, publisher at, uh, Sumero Press, I got a referral from another uh, Buddhist writer um, and who is also a uh, Buddhist scholar. And mm. he connected me with this publisher. And so I said, hey, this is what I got. Are you interested in, in doing it? And he said, sure, let's go. Um, so um, I compiled uh, the essays, rewrote some of them. Uh, so that they worked together more effectively in the book form. And, and also, you know, some of my experiences and points of view over the time, you know, change a little bit. And so they needed to be updated. 
uh, mm-hmm. to reflect my own personal growth. You know, something that I wrote uh, from way back when I started the blog, which was also called My Buddha is Pink. Um, okay. You know, yeah. I, I grew and became a different person. And so some of those things I don't necessarily consider the same way now as I did then. Sure, sure. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book was how I learned so much in reading your book because you explained things that I imagine could be really complicated in a way that I could really understand. And you also brought this humor in. Um, There were places in the book where you almost um, had this campy tone, um, you know, to what you were saying to the queer queer, um, listener or the queer reader in that case, and just wondered, you know, what made you decide to bring the humor in like you did? Well, as I began to read more Buddhist texts and talk to monks and and other practitioners, it, it became very apparent that uh, Buddhism is is like many other religions that come from uh, backgrounds that are centuries old, and so they're they're all built on these these ancient texts and the way mm-hmm. people talked, you know. 2,500 years ago is a lot different than the way we talk now. And, you right, know, right. and even the concept of, of being gay was uh, viewed very differently thousands of years ago. So there was important teachings I recognized within these texts. But man, sometimes the the way they were presented with all these spirits and all kinds of, you know, (laughs) mumbo jumbo kind of stuff. And and I I wanted to distill it down to, you know, Hey, how do I, how do I apply this today? In fact, one of my early teachers, um, it was kind of an open house ceremony Mm -hmm. for the uh, Buddha's birthday in, in May. Um, and he was speaking to the group and, you know, one of his phrases that he often would say when new people would come to the uh, Dhammasala, he would say things like, you know, hey, no, don't worry, we don't sacrifice goats here. You know, just <laughs> kind of lighten things up to take the, the, the mystery. So much, so much religion and theology gets cloaked in this mystery that... It, frankly, in my opinion, is very unnecessary. And I like the way you said that, because that's that's really what I I think I was trying to say that I got out of your book, was that you took so much of the mystery out of it and explained so many of these different concepts um, in a way that I think the average person like myself, who doesn't know much about Buddhism, could really understand. I think it's a real strength of your book. Thank you. And and that was exactly what I was trying to to achieve, especially when, you know, people get caught up and they think about, oh, well, what is all this rebirth stuff? And, you know, what is, uh, you know, karma or kama, you know, what does all that mean? And blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of like, hey, do you want to be a good person? Here's how you do it. Right. And that leads me to the next question that I, that you really you cover early in the book. And I'll just kind of throw the question out at you. Um, and that's, if I if I want to become a Buddhist, does that mean I need to become a vegetarian, believe in past lives and give up sex? 
Sorry. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing in your general direction. No, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, that is a very common, you know, reaction. Um, and as I explain in the book, I mean, even the Buddha was not a vegetarian. You know, it, ah, it's a tradition okay. uh, of monks. So, well, the tradition of monks was created so that the Buddhist teachings could be preserved and so that they could devote their attention to developing um, their own um, awareness in, in their achievement to Nibbana. They relied on lay people for their sustenance. So even, mm. you know, in the 20, 20th century, 21st century, one of the Dhammasalas that I would go to, and the Dhammasala is a place where um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a setting. It's not, it's not like a church. Um, it's more of like a monastery where you can go to um, mm. uh, be educated in the Buddhist teachings, etc., so mm-hmm. all the worldly things, monks are not supposed to touch money. Um, the, and so things like that needed to be done for them. There was a reliance on the lay community to support the monks because the monks were developing um, the teachings. So um, the idea of that, they brought them food. So a monk ate whatever somebody put in their bowl. So, uh, you know, if somebody yeah. put meat in there, well, then, you know, that was that was a gift to them. So, you know, they would eat it. So um, the idea of becoming a vegetarian, I'm pretty sure, comes from the notion that you're not supposed to kill anything. You're not supposed to sure. kill any sentient beings. Um, but the uh, people like to have things black and white, and Buddhism is uh, a little more complex in that that there are subtle there are subtle shades of gray, um, and it mm. and it isn't so much the fact that you killed an animal so that you could eat; it is the intention behind why you did it. You know what are you trying to accomplish? And I mentioned it right. in an area of the book: a person who hunts animals to put food on their family's table, the karmic consequences of killing animals for them is going to be very different from the trophy hunter who goes to whatever foreign land, spends thousands and thousands of dollars just so that they can kill an animal for their own selfish desire. To put a head on a wall. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. And, you know, this really gets into, there's so many questions come out of this. Really, um, you, you talk quite a bit about the difference between somebody being a monk and someone being a lay person, that, that somebody doesn't have to, uh, someone who's drawn to Buddhism doesn't have to think that they have to become a monk to um, follow the Buddhist philosophy. Right. That was something that I encountered, that there were a lot of Buddhist writers who seem to expect lay people to follow the monastic code, um, particularly when it came to sex. And the monastic code is just that. It's designed for monks. 
So which monks are supposed to abstain from all forms of Mm -hmm. sex. Mm -hmm. But that's not to be applied to lay people. But there were a lot of commentators throughout uh, history who seemed to imply the that um, you know they would create these restrictions that you know you sex was only for procreation you know which is not any different from very fundamental Christian points of view. What we that, hear here, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it was the the intent the intention of the Buddha's teachings were were being lost because of the the voice the ego of the person who is you know presenting it like any religion buddhism has the potential for someone to use the teachings for their own personal gain and benefit and power mm. we've seen that in the buddhist community in terms of sex scandals just as we have seen um in uh, the christian community ah uh, yeah there's a, I really enjoyed the chapter on um, coming out, and I wondered if you could talk about how coming out um, can be related to Buddhism, or how Buddhism can help somebody in the coming out process. Well, I, as I wrote it, when you think back on the time when you did come out to others, just mm-hmm. before coming out, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of trepidation. For, for many of us, um, for some people, it was, you know, hey, I, people knew I was gay as soon as I stepped out of the womb. There was no hiding it. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's funny. Not, so for some people, it was a, it was a matter of uh, dealing with, um, in a more confront. I don't want to say confrontational, but in a more upfront way, how people reacted to them. For others, it was a little more difficult. And so at that moment of coming out, there was a sense, at least for me, of relief and mm-hmm. a sense of release. It was like I had just cast away these, these heavy bonds and weights that had been, uh, I'd been metaphorically dragging around all my life. And I finally realized that, hey, I don't have to live my life this way. I do not have to let the outside world be the the entity that defines who I am. I can do that myself. So the whole concept of coming out is very liberating. And what I found with Buddhism was the same feeling of liberation, which I think maybe someone who converts, let's say, to a monotheistic belief, there is a moment Mm -hmm. of elation in the experience of converting or whatever, of giving yourself into whatever theology that person is is joining. Um, But it's, it's still an outside source. It is still an outside um, environment that is, again, controlling who you are and, and how you are perceived. But with Buddhism, just as in with coming out, it's, it is a more inward expression uh, and liberating in finding that, that 
Um, I don't have to feel the way I feel, not because mm-hmm. there's some uh, some puppet in the sky or whatever that is going to save me. I can save mm-hmm. myself. And um, I, are you familiar with the anime film Evangelion? No, I think I think you may have referenced that in the book, right? Now, at the time I wrote the book, I didn't know about Evangelion, but um, okay, okay, recently, I'm mixing it up with something else. Yeah, right? Evangelion uh, at the this part it's an anime series okay. um, from like the '90s, and but anyway, long story short, at the end, uh, the main character Shinji learns that because he's had a miserable life. He believes his father doesn't love him. He his mother mm. died. He, he's just so he just goes through life trying to please people, and mm. he finally realizes that he can do things for himself. And then his reality, he he is not subordinate to his reality. He can shape his own reality, and uh, this really yeah. ties yeah. into the Buddhist notion of what is anatta. And that's this notion of no self, which okay. is it one of those things that people know oh, there is no self. Well, that's not exactly what no self means. What it means is there's no permanent self. We, ah, okay. we have a self, but it's always changing and adapting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to whatever experiences we have in our life. And if we take control or more control, I should say, because we can't control everything. There are other people in the world. But the more control we exert over what we do and how we react, the more influence it has on our immediate surroundings and our immediate reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very empowering, very, very um, vivid realization that, you know, I can, you know, if I think life sucks, I can do something about it. I'm not helpless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I thought it was fascinating in this, in this whole line of thought, how you talked about how coming out can be, is, can be a transformative process. Like you were saying, how, you know, your, your, yourself is changing new reality and so on. And you talked about how there's a tendency to, um, unconsciously move towards conformity yeah, and then oh, even yes. after people come out that they'll find themselves in the gay community or the queer community and they'll find themselves conforming again to dress codes or right. certain ways people act I, I wonder if you could talk some more about that i think that's yeah. a great part of your book right yes our gay liberation becomes a gay limitation um, oh that's a good way to say it yeah yes yeah. it it, uh, it is true you know hey you know i come out and now i'm free to be me and but but what am I? Uh, you know, do I am I am I a leather daddy? You know, am I the boy next door? You know, um, yeah. am I a drag queen? Uh, do I do you know? Uh, do I wear angora sweaters or do I wear polo shirts? You know, do I have to change what fashions I wear? You know, there because we still have this we still have this desire that we we want to fit in. And that's that's mm-hmm. a, a unique part, I think, um, part problem, uh, pitfall with being gay because 
when we were in the closet, when we were growing up, we didn't feel a part of things. We uh-huh. felt uh-huh. separated. Maybe we didn't know why we were feeling that way. But, you know, over time, we began to put two and two together and, and began to realize that, wow, I am different. And that difference became a liability. We didn't like it necessarily. Some of us were uh-huh. stronger and we embraced that difference, um, and which is, which is uh, great. But yeah, we come out and then we have to, it's like, okay, I'm tired of pretending I'm part of this group. Oh, but now I'm going to be this group, you know, right. I'm going to experiment with this or that, um, which I, in and of itself, I'm not saying is, is, is bad, but it, it's, it's all accessory and hasn't really anything to do with who I am or who you are as a person, hey, it's okay the, to accessorize your life. There's no problem with that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, everybody has their own little things they like to do, and that's perfectly fine. But when it we confuse that with who am I as a as a person, you know, and how I react to other people, you know, going back to the notion of just be a good human being, um, uh-huh. you know, you don't have to wear a certain, you know, fashion. You don't have to behave a certain way to do that. Anybody can do that um, regardless of what accessories you may be donning. It's a a big, it is a very common pitfall. Um, And, you know, I fell into that pitfall for a while as well, as I mentioned, you know, in in the book. And Uh Buddhism opened my eyes to, okay, it's all right for me to like certain activities, um, but that's not who I am. There's more to who I am and, and more to my growth than, than these proclivities one may have. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because there's um, so many, you know, what you're talking about is so similar to um, humanistic psychology, you know, and, and the focus of um, trying to self-actualize and become your real self versus becoming what others you think others expect you to be. And I, I, you know, that's a totally different conversation, but I find that fascinating. And, you know, the humanist psychologists, I suppose, would talk about how not doing that can lead to depression and anxiety and so on. What, what do, what do, um, what does Buddhism say about that? What happens if somebody gets stuck in this trap of conformity? Well, the, it goes back to the four noble truths, which essentially is, you know, if your life sucks, you are doing something to make it suck. And right, uh, right. so it, it comes back to how do you perceive what is going on? And are you, are you looking for what it is you can do uh, on your own without relying? Um, and, and I'm not saying you don't, become totally unreliant on others, but you're doing something for yourself as opposed to appease or please others. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, it's, it's difficult, it's challenging, and it can be scary because the initial reaction, I think, for many people is, um, I don't want to isolate myself from people. You know, I like having friends. I like yeah, socializing. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I like going to, um, uh, you know, I like to go dancing. I like to go to the gay pride parade. Um, I like to date people. Um, I like to have sex. Um, I like, yeah. you know, to have cocktails with friends. Um, but all of those things are not me. And mm-hmm. they're, you know, things that you can enjoy. And they're also things that if I'm not paying attention to what's going on, I can start, to, I might do something that hurts somebody's feelings. Um, I might uh, do something that um, gets in the way of somebody else's pursuit of happiness. And that's how I make, that's how I make karma. And uh-huh. that's the realization of, okay, if something is blowing up in my face, you know, instead of blaming everybody else for blowing up in my face, can I, can I sit down and think about somewhere along the line, I did something. Um, and that's not meaning I'm entirely to blame for everything, but somehow I played a role in this and I need mm-hmm. to know what that role is. So I don't do it again. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'm applying this in the right place, but I, it really it really stuck with me. Um, there was towards the end of your book, you um, quote a um, great metaphor that, that an, I guess another Buddhist writer had used about a musical instrument um, that if the string is too tight or the string is too loose, it's obviously not going to play a note. It's not going to play the right note, or it's not going to you know it's not going to sound right. And I wondered if this applied to what you're talking about with all these different things that trying to find a balance between individually trying to find a balance for what's going to lead you to a, um, I don't know what the expression would be, right life? Or how would you say that? Yeah, well, the teaching, it's actually one of the Buddhist teachings that you were talking about. Okay, Um, okay. And that was the the idea is it kind of reflects back on what what we know about the Buddha because he tried at first, I mean, he was born into enormous wealth. He was a prince. So his Mm -hmm. every whim was catered to, you know, he wanted women, they brought him women. He wanted food, he (laughs) did, lots of everything. And then he decided to go the other extreme. And that's when he became a hermit. And, you know, there are Buddhist images of a very emaciated Buddha because he did, according to the stories, um, you know, potentially nearly starve himself to death. Um, and, mm. and then he realized that it's, it's a striking the right balance in the middle. And that was another beautiful thing that I really liked about Buddhism because of the, the um, you know, with Christianity, at least you have the Ten Commandments. Um, mm-hmm. You have the five precepts in Buddhism, and the way they are structured is that they're more of encouragements as opposed to um, uh, absolutes. Okay. So, right, right. because of the idea, finding the middle ground of, um, you know, if you like wine, then, you know, understanding that, yes, having wine with your meal. You know, that's a perfectly fine thing. But when you overindulge, that's when you start making mistakes. You start harming people. You say things that hurt other people's feelings. You start Uh, to damage uh. your body. 
Um, you know, so it's kind of finding that balance. You don't need to completely abstain, but, um, you know, finding that balance. Same with any other substance. I mean, very much around the country now, most places you can use cannabis. It's, it's uh, you know, readily available. But that's another substance that can easily turn into something of over um, overuse. So finding that right balance, like a finely tuned guitar so that That's it's, it was, yeah. it's yeah. creating, you know, your life is creating beautiful music. It's soothing. Mm. And mm. when something unexpected happens, even when something really tragic happens, you don't get rolled over by it. You can accept it. And it doesn't mean you won't get sad. It's fine. If you get sad, you get sad. Um, you get angry, you get angry, but you don't let the 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 emotion overwhelm you. Um, you keep yourself centered, knowing that this is just mm-hmm. the moment. Right now, it's not going to be like this forever. Mm-hmm. You and you have the the great chapter um, about sex, and you know so many people who. I mean, I would, I would venture to say maybe the majority, I'm not sure, but of queer people in the United States have, you know, heard me- messages from their church that it's, um, you know, it's a sin to be gay or it's a sin to have an alternative gender identity. Um, and, you know, you you really frame this differently based on what your understanding of Buddhism is. But then at the same time, you say that um, there still are quite a few, um, I guess, Buddhist scholars um, who who um, still really kind of come along with the what some of these fundamentalist religions say, including supporting reparative therapy in Thailand. I think you even said at some point in your book. Yeah, so I just wondered about all that. Yeah, yeah. It, as I said earlier, Buddhism is uh, subject to the same prejudices that all humans are subject mm-hmm. to because. Mm-hmm. The keepers of the faith um, are humans, and the while of humanity is often, you know, what what can, what's in it for me, and right, right, and right. all religious teachers run the potential, and Buddhists are no exception, of becoming charismatic leaders, in in which people look up to them and think they can do no wrong and then you know that can that can very much i can turn you into a freak and yeah it, it yeah. can turn you into uh-huh. a malicious freak and yeah. and you can get caught up in in the uh, the grandeur of being such a you know well recognized and established scholar or monk or whatever teacher um, and then you start doing things um, that are selfish and self-absorbed, mm-hmm. and you hurt people. It happens in Buddhism just like it happens um, in, in other religions, which is why over time I got my core belief, core teachings from others. But then I, I stopped affiliating myself with sanghas. Um, it, it, because Buddhism really is an individual journey. Uh, I mean, can, can you Buddha, tell the listeners um, what a sangha is? Uh, uh, yes, the, the sangha is the um, 
community of monks. Okay. Okay. Thanks. And um, so for monks, you know, they do, they, they intentionally isolate themselves from the way of the world so that they can focus on um, the teachings and uh, hopefully achieve enlightenment. Um for lay people, I mean, if you want to become enlightened, it uh, you you might want to become a monastic and and go mm-hmm. that route uh, because there's very many distractions. But at the same time, I guess that's what I kind of say in my book, in my belief. You know, you can be a Buddhist and you don't have to have enlightenment as your ultimate goal. You know, just be a good person, and you know. Try not to screw up somebody else's, you know, life just because you <laughs> yeah. want something. Because the bottom line is every, almost everything, almost every disappointment we experience in life is because we had unrealistic expectations. Uh, mm-hmm. It's our expectations that disappoint us. And often we think we're doing the right thing, but, you know, maybe um, I'm trying to be friendly with this person, you know, not because I think they're a nice person, but maybe it's because I want to sleep with them. Or maybe it's, <laughs> you know, maybe it's because they can get me a job. And, you know, we, we, um, we're very good at lying to ourselves. Part of the human nature, huh? Yes. And, and, yeah. and what I liked about Buddhism was that it helped me very much like you were talking about with the with the self-actualization and psychology. It, it yeah. helped me understand this thing called ego uh, within right. myself. Right. I did not have to rely on prayer to an outside entity to guide me. It's everything I need to know is inside me already. I just need mm-hmm. to find it and listen to it. You know, um, I'm putting two, two different things you said at different parts of your book, but that they both kind of struck me together. One was you said that um, Buddhism is about, of course, it involves thinking, but you said Buddhism is more about acting than thinking. And then later in the book, you said that, um, I'm quoting here, Buddhism in North America tends to attract intellectual types, and intellectual types tend to overthink just about everything. And I read that and thought you were speaking to me like correctly. <laughs> and I thought there are so many of us um, like that. And so I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about you know the, those two two things I just read. Yeah, it, it it does come down to action for the most part, and and the way we think, thought is considered a form of action. Because before, mm, okay, okay. And, and so when I'm thinking of, when I'm speaking of thought, I'm keeping that separate from intellectualizing, uh, which is um, a different endeavor, at least in, in my mind. Uh, let me try and see if I can, uh, the, the idea is that it's our thoughts words and deeds that create consequences and Mm -hmm. every act every deed begins with a thought okay so that's where you know keeping 
the idea of, you know, asking ourselves very much like how the Buddha taught his son Rahula when Rahula was like seven, eight years old. You know, hey, once in a while, stop and think about what you're, what you're about to do. Think mm-hmm. about what are the consequences. You know, it, it, would somebody be hurt? Is it going to benefit anybody? And then how is it going to impact you? We do so many things without even thinking of the consequences. We say things. Right. Um, they just, boom, they come out. Well, I say what I mean all the time. Oh, oh that mm-hmm. must be why you have no friends. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. So, it, really taking the time to to think about our actions and the potential consequences. What the scholars tend to do is look at well, what does this? How do you translate this from the Pali Canon? And you know, who wrote this? And when was it written? <laughs> and you know, what right. is Nibbana? What is, you know, the various stages of enlightenment? What is jhana? Uh, You know, all these very esoteric things, which interestingly, um, more and more scholars are beginning to realize that all that stuff was created after the Buddha was dead. And he may not ever Uh, have even talked about it. Um, So I remember you saying that in the book. Yeah. In fact, am I right in saying that? I think you you listed something called four right effects, and I think you said that those are the only things that can be really only thing that can be truly attributed to Buddha. Um, Did I get that well, right? The four noble truths, actually. Four noble truths. I'm mixing yes. things up. I'll mix yeah. up the list. Yeah, yeah you, were, yeah. you okay. were yeah confusing it with the four right efforts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> A lot of numbers, you know. <laughs> A lot of numbers. Yeah, I was going to say there. Yeah, I, in fact, I wrote down the. You talk about the metaphor of the three legged stool. The um, let's see, eight noble truths, I think, um, uh, five hindrances to it's a whole list of things. And, right. and the, I, the noble yeah, eight and fold you, path. Yeah. But then you also say, um, and I'm quoting here, you say, it's your movie. It wasn't written for you. You write it as you go along. Yes. I really like that line. That was a great line. Yeah. One of my favorite teachings um, from the Buddha is uh, he's, he's talking to this monk who isolated himself in a forest away from everybody. And um, the Buddha was kind of chastising him saying, you think this is, you think this is how you do it? You know, you just go off in the woods and you go off by yourself. You know, it, it, there's more, there's more to it, you know, than that. And the, the, um, um, I'm sorry, I, my my brain just twisted down another road here that uh, I'm losing the uh, losing the focus of where I was going. But the, the idea that uh, yeah, say that again. What you oh oh that um you know um, you list these different and you explain it so well for someone to understand these different um and I don't know what they called are they called precepts or are they called um these different you have the eight noble truths um. Four, what is it? Four noble truths. Um, the the uh, um, oh yeah, the four noble truths, which um, is essentially all these different numbers. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of these these numbers, and for someone new, it can be it can be daunting, and it can sound like oh, this is just like you know, this is just like catechism. Um, right. But uh, 
you know, the Four Noble Truths basically explains why your life is unsatisfactory. The Noble Eightfold Path is the guidance guidance for how to correct that. And yeah, that's right. I was talking about the monk in the forest. And Mm -hmm. what the Buddha was telling this monk is um, you cannot change the past. What is done is done. It cannot be undone. But what you did is uh, in the past is why you are here in this present moment. Mm-hmm. That is how you got here right now in this present moment. So what you do right now is going to influence and shape your future. Mm-hmm. So stop living in the past. Stop dreaming about the future. Pay attention to what you do right now, all the time. And that will help ensure a happy and satisfactory future and alleviate whatever stress and pain you have created by what you did in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and this ties right into um, the last section of your book where you talk about the importance of mindfulness and meditation and, you know, give some guidance on how somebody can, can um, start to practice meditation in their own life. That is a very important part. You mentioned the three-legged stool because that was mm-hmm. a wonderful metaphor that one of my teachers uh, I love provided. That. Yeah. And meditation is, is very important. Uh, and going back to the three-legged stool, the three parts is um, we, we need to develop virtue. And that's where the precepts come in because they're guidance of, you know, um, the first thing you need to do is stop doing n- nasty things to other people. Stop doing right. things that are hurting other people and learn how to cultivate things that are, uh, are, are more beneficial. So that's what virtue is about. Um, and then the other one is, um, uh, concentration. All right. And concentration is, that's the meditation so that you develop Mm -hmm. a focus in your mind. And, And if you haven't noticed, um, my meditation practice has not been the best that it's, uh, has been, um, in the past. And that is reflected by my losing my train of thought. Um, so the meditation part is very, very important because it helps you focus the mind, the monkey mind Mm. that we mentioned earlier, because our mind does, it flits from one thing to another and you cannot develop the third leg of the stool, which is wisdom, unless you can focus your mind on things that are helpful, that matter. So the combination of these and and they all work together because if you spend too much time, like on one, if all I do is I sit around and meditate, well, you know, am I developing any wisdom, you know, um, you know, am I developing any virtue? Um, If I run around and be like virtuous in this total uh, saint, do I have any wisdom, you know, and am I able to concentrate on anything, you know, so they all, they all really work together. Um, so they need to be equally developed. 
And the meditation is really, really important. As I mentioned in the book, you can, you can meditate and not be Buddhist, but you can't be Buddhist unless you meditate. I remember you said that. Yeah, yeah. It's and I think important. people will believe, and I think people will be relieved to hear. Um, I remember you saying in your book that it's okay to start with five minutes a day. That that's perfectly fine. Right, because that was a that was a struggle that I had initially when I began. Um, I was I just became so frustrated, um, you know, because I, I thought the goal of meditation was to just completely silence my mind. Yeah, and yeah. that was maddening. I mean, it <laughs> it's was impossible, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah the chatter going on. Um, you know, it's it is. It's like a bunch of squirrels running around. You know, <laughs> and and like dashing out in the road, and then boom, a car comes by and squashes you because you're not, you know, you're not paying attention, or just like the <laughs> monkey jumping from tree to tree, right? Or right. or like you know the wild horse and. So the the idea of meditation is to tame that mind so that you can focus it on thoughts and and and, and um, energy that's you know so that you can investigate. So mm-hmm. the idea of yeah, just starting off with five minutes, you know, how long can you sit silently and pay attention to your breath? Um without any other thought coming into your mind. And it's probably pretty short. Uh, But then the idea is not to get frustrated about the fact that you started thinking. Um, The trick I learned was ask yourself, which is thinking, you know, pause. I go, oh, where did that thought come from? So I'm actually kind of training myself to pay attention to that random thought that came into my mind. But as soon as I mm. do that, the thought is gone because I can't pay attention to something that doesn't exist. It's almost like having, it's almost like being able to sit back. Um, I'm not sure if this is a metaphor used with the, what I said about the movie earlier, but almost being able to sit back and watch what's happening like a movie. Y- yes. It, you become a distracted um, or, that's sort of distract. Maybe that's not the right word, but you become an observer who is not mm-hmm. um, in, invested because that's where thinking goes. Uh, that's what thinking does. It sucks you into, you know, you start thinking about, you know, where did that thought come? Oh, I remember that person. Oh, they made me so mad or, oh, d- geez, did I do well? Or oh, I forgot to turn, um, I forgot to turn in that paper or I forgot to finish that assignment um, or, you know, oh, I said something to so-and-so or are they going to be, see all these. And then you start following these, these thoughts that go, they, they go nowhere and they create stress. So the idea is to look at your thoughts, not as being part of you, but as, an object outside of you and look at it. Oh, this thought, where did it come from? And like I say, as soon as you do that, it kind of disappears. Okay. I'll go back and focus on my breath again. You know, mm-hmm. breathe for a few times and then boom, another thought comes along. Hmm. Where'd that come from? <laughs> oh, it's gone. Okay. And then, you know, once I learned how to do that, um, you are able to develop longer periods of where you are doing nothing but focusing on your breath and without any other thought coming in. 
And then when mm-hmm. you when you start to achieve that kind of level of concentration, because that's what you're mm-hmm. trying to achieve, concentration, then you can start to focus on, all right, I've been feeling sorrowful about something. Where is that coming from? Is it related to, and so you begin, you can focus your thinking on, on uh, more practical, beneficial thoughts that occur in your mind and begin to understand where some of these things come from. Um, a breakthrough that I had um, with my meditation uh, was, it wasn't that I started chasing a thought, but a thought did arise in me that was very relevant to a um, emotional situation that I was going through at the time. And I was able to look at it without fear and come to understand, you know, why it was there. And it helped me in my interpersonal relationships with some other people um, because I understood now, uh, you know, why I was doing things that I wasn't exactly sure why. It's amazing the connections between Buddhism and um, things that have been adopted from Buddhism and counseling and psychology today, whether it's mindfulness or, or, or other things. There, there, there is, yes, there is considerable, um, there is considerable overlap and, Thich Nhat Hanh was, uh, he was a Vietnamese teacher and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he wrote several books that very much talk about that. His book on love is really quite amazing because mm. it, it he has a couple exercises uh, that he recommends that you do, you know, with your significant other or partner um, and to evaluate uh, you know, the relationship for, at a deeper level as opposed to a superficial level and how uh. to communicate with people in a method that isn't, um, that isn't, uh, confrontational is not the right word, but it's um, in a way that is, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to get at the bottom of something for your own gain mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You, it uh, it's a exercise for communicating with others that is equally beneficial because it's based on the, mm-hmm. the Buddhist teachings that on, on speech. Um, you know that when you are speaking with somebody, you you want to strive for communications that are beneficial not just to you but beneficial to that other to person. person. Yeah, if it's only beneficial to you then you're not treating that person as a human being. You're treating them as an object of gain. Right, right. It's, it's all, it, it, it's just a, a way of recognizing, um, you know, when you are doing these things, and there are many psychology or psychological practices that are also, that kind of work with that. The, the part with Buddhism that doesn't have really much to do with psychology is um, I guess with the explanation or origin of dysfunction. Ah, right, right. Buddhism is more focused on your dysfunction. um, And this is kind of a, I I, I could be wrong on this. 
and it's kind of a dangerous thing to say, but your dysfunction is largely of your own creation. And that's a tough thing for many people, for me it was, to swallow because it's so easy to turn into self-blame. Um, mm-hmm. And But that's the, going back to that other teaching I was mentioning, don't live in the past, okay? Uh, okay. You're here yeah. because of what you did in the past. And maybe you did something really crappy in the past, all right? Um, and you're and you're have you're at the karma. Karma's coming, baby. You know, because <laughs> all karma is is consequences, and you know you never know how and when they're going to show up. So when you do, and, and you start to experience them, and maybe you don't even know why something bad is happening to you, because man, you've been you've been doing so good lately, uh, but you just accept mm-hmm. it. It's your next choice that's going to make all the difference. And um, yeah, psychology teaches that to a large degree, but I don't have to get into too many, um, you know, I don't have to get into transactional analysis. I don't have to get into Uh any Freudian symbolism. I do not need to get Uh into any, you know, Jungian concepts or anything like that to explain the origin of my discomfort. All I need mm-hmm. to know is I played a hand in it and I'm going to play a hand in its resolution. Mm-hmm. We're almost at the end of the time, but I wanted to make sure I asked you um, this question. What What do you hope um, readers will take out of your book? Um, I hope they'll take a laugh and a chuckle. Yeah, there's um, definitely that. I had, I had many laughs and ch- I laughed many times. I loved some of the humor. Yeah. Um, I hope that they uh, get something useful. Um, mm-hmm. that they can use. I think that's another thing what I like about Buddhism is that um, it is verifiable. Mm. There's so much in other religions that you have to, it's it's all faith, um, that there's this mystery that you cannot know. And there mm-hmm. will be points in following the Buddhist path where you're doing something based on faith. But eventually, you get to experience the verification that this teaching or whatever, you know, it's it really happens. It really works this mm-hmm. way. You experience it. And when that happens, that verification, that feeling of, of yes, um, I understand now, is uh, really quite not just satisfying, but it's very empowering because then it propels you to the uh, next step. And I think I used a couple very purient examples in explaining that process um, Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. And I was talking about, um, um, well, right effort and right mindfulness Mm -hmm. Um, and also, um, uh, what's the one just before right effort? It is, uh, not right livelihood, right action. You know, you begin to realize that uh, there is a right way to do things and there is a benefit to doing them the right way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you begin to understand that the consequences of your actions, when you pay attention to what you're doing not only tend to improve 
but the longevity of those consequences um, improve as well. I used to be a newspaper reporter, and I was ah, okay. I, I was interviewing um, a judge who also, for a time, conducted lie detector tests. Oh wow! And you know our discussion turned to, you know, why do people lie? And he said, that based on all the lie detector tests that he'd given, his conclusion was people lie because they think the consequence of lying will be less severe than to tell the truth. Mm. So it's like we, we tend to trick ourselves right from the start into thinking, you know, that uh, at least with lying that, uh, oh, this isn't going to cause any harm or it'll get me out of trouble now mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, whereas, you know, just telling the truth, yeah, there's going to be a consequence for telling the truth. But usually that consequence is going to be isolated to that moment when you tell the truth. It isn't necessarily going to be something following you. Yeah, there's so much to discuss in this book. And I could, I could probably talk with you another hour, but... Um... We have come to the end, and so I just want to thank you again for um, coming on our podcast today. Well, thank you very much for reaching out and uh, inviting me to do this. I hope I wasn't too esoteric or rambling. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't. I think our listeners are really going to appreciate um, what you said today. Um, and and for our listeners, if you are interested in reading my Pink Buddha. Click on the highlighted title of the book in the description included with this podcast. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.